This is Space Time Series 24, Episode 106, for broadcast on the 20th of September 2021. Coming up on Space Time, a new look at planet-changing supervolcanoes, work gets underway on the moon capsule, and four space tourists undertake a three-day voyage in orbit. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. A new study warns that supervolcano eruptions aren't singular events, but can continue with follow-up blasts for thousands of years after the first eruption. Supervolcanic eruptions are among the most catastrophic event in any planet's history. That includes the Earth. They vent tremendous amounts of magma almost instantaneously. They impact global climate. Here on Earth, that means triggering a volcanic winter with abnormally cold temperatures, causing widespread famine and population disruptions. The new findings, reported in the journal Nature, are based on a study of volcanic debris from the Toba eruption in Indonesia 75,000 years ago. There's no other way to say it. Toba was the largest volcanic eruption in human history. It had a volcanic explosivity index of 8, the highest possible score on the chart. The Volcanic Explosivity Index is a logarithmic scale for an eruption dependent on how much volcanic material is thrown out, to what height it's thrown, and how long the eruption lasts. While people these days talk about events such as the famous 1883 eruption of Krakatoa in the Sunda Strait between the islands of Java and Sumatra, or more recently the Mount St. Helens eruption in Washington State, these were thousands of times smaller than Toba. Thankfully, supervolcanoes like Toba are few and far between. The last was New Zealand's Taupo volcano some 28,500 years ago. Supervolcanoes often erupt several times, with intervals of tens of thousands of years between big eruptions. But it's not known what happens during the dormant periods. One of the study's authors, Associate Professor Martin Danishik from Curtin University, says gaining an understanding of these lengthy dormant periods will help scientists work out what to look for in young active supervolcanoes and help scientists predict future eruptions. Danishik and colleagues found such volcanoes remain active and hazardous for thousands of years following a supereruption, prompting a need for a rethink as to how these potentially catastrophic events are predicted. He says learning how supervolcanoes work is important for understanding the future threat of an inevitable supereruption, which happen about once every 17,000 years. Remember what I said earlier about the last one being Topu some 28,500 years ago. I guess that means we're overdue for the next. The authors investigated the fate of magma left behind after the Toba supereruption using the mineral's feldspar and zircon, which contain independent records of time based on the accumulation of gases argon and helium acting as time capsules in the volcanic rocks. The geochronological data, statistical inference and thermal modelling showed that magma continued to ooze out within the caldera created by the eruption for between 5,000 and 13,000 years after the super-eruption took place. And even when that ceased, there was this solidified leftover magma which was being pushed up, sort of like a giant turtle shell. 
Denishik says the new findings challenge existing knowledge of volcanic eruptions, which normally involves looking for liquid magma under a volcano in order to assess a future threat. Supervolcano is a term to use to describe a really big volcano. So our civilization has not actually experienced a supervolcanic eruption, thankfully. So based on the definition of USGS, a supervolcano is a volcano which uh, has experienced at least one super eruption, which means it produced at least 1,000 cubic kilometers of material. So Toba is one of several supervolcanoes that has experienced this super eruption. In fact, Toba has experienced two super eruptions. And basically, these are these kind of supervillains in uh, Earth history because they have some terrible effects on Earth and also on human population and other living creatures. Toba is in uh, Indonesia and it last erupted about 75,000 years ago. That was a key event in human history, wasn't it? Well, it was thought to be and we can say for sure that that was the largest known eruption in the quaternary period. So we don't have any eruption of that magnitude in the past 2.8 million years. And yes, the initial estimates were that there was a huge decrease in the human population on our planet. But this was later corrected. But what we can say for sure is that there was definitely some effect on climate on Earth. So there was a global cooling that was caused by this eruption. These volcanic winters are really a big part of the whole thing, aren't they? There's so much dust and debris pumped into the upper atmosphere that it can blanket the entire planet. Yeah, that's correct. So according to the latest estimates, there was more than 5,000 cubic kilometers of material blasted into the air, which is a lot. It's hard to imagine. We know that the area of roughly 40 million square kilometers was covered by at least five centimeters of ash. That's about five times size of Australian continent. And you are right. So there's ash and also some gases such as uh, sulfur dioxide that will go into stratosphere and this will deflect radiation from sun. So the climate will cool consequently. See, normally when we think of a, a volcanic eruption, people think about the lahar and the pyroclastic flow and the initial lava and explosive output. Very much, I guess, the, the Mount St. Helen type of scenario. But on the yeah, scale the of Mount, things, Mount St. Helen was really tiny, wasn't it? Uh, they was comparing to Toba very tiny. I think this was off the top of my head, I think, uh, magnitude 5 eruption. But I might be wrong, but the Toba was magnitude 8 eruption and potentially magnitude 9 eruption. Wow. So in terms of uh, pyroclastic flows, they basically killed everything in a radius 100 kilometers from the uh, from the volcanic center in every direction. The pyroclastic flows, they saw these huge masses of gas and ash, and uh, these can travel for a long distance, 100 to 150 kilometers at high speed, more than 100 kilometers per hour, and basically killing everything in a way. So in Toba, the area covered by Ignimbrites, or pyroclastic flow deposit, is around 30,000 square kilometers, which is about half of the size of Tasmania. I remember when I was a kid, I was amazed by the eruption of Mount Pinatubo, the, which was the biggest eruption in my lifetime. And mm-hmm. I, I was living in Sydney at the time, and I remember seeing purple sunsets caused by Pinatubo erupting in the Philippines so far away. That sort of gave me a new respect for what a volcano can do. Yeah, well, this is very typical, and this is exactly caused by the particles that are in the stratosphere that are creating all all, all sort of different this, uh, optical phenomena. So they should probably, one of the positive things should be that they can create beautiful sunsets and sunrises. 
And yes, this phenomenon has been observed after large eruptions such as Pinatubo or Tambora, which was, I think, 1815, which was the largest known eruption that uh, modern civilization experienced. And yes, similar, similar phenomena have been observed and reported from around the world. What we're finding through this new research that you've been a part of, the supervolcano eruption isn't really a singular event. It can go on for quite some time. Tell me about it all. Yeah, so at Toba, what we saw was that there was a super eruption about 75, like 74,000 years ago. There was this huge blast. But after the super eruption, there was an eruption of several much smaller lava domes. And before our study, the general understanding was that these domes were created basically almost simultaneously with the super eruption and with the caldera collapse. Now, we use these modern dating techniques and analyze the zircon from these lava domes. And what we found is that domes were actually erupting much, much, much later. And in geological time scales, it wasn't that, that late after the super eruption, but still it's five to 13,000 years later after the, the eruption, which basically means that after the super eruption, there is actually still a lot of volcanic activity going on in Toba. And this is quite important for volcanologists and the way how we understand super eruptions. So it's not a case of needing a, a full magma chamber to erupt? Not really. So after the super eruption, you will evacuate some of the melt from the magma chamber and the rooftop of the magma chamber will collapse and create caldera. But this remaining magma in a chamber will need to readjust. First, this is sort of squashed and compressed, but after that, it will need to adjust to a new lithostatic pressures and magmastatic pressures around. So the next thing what happened in Caldera is the rise of a dome. So in Toba Caldera, there's an island called Samosir, which is this uh, dome in the middle of the caldera. So this was pushed upwards. And on top of it, some remaining parts of the, of the magma will be squeezed uh, to the surface. And this magma will be erupted in the form of small lava domes. Now, in our study, we not only found that these lava domes were erupted uh, several thousand of years after the super eruption, but we also believe that these lava domes, when they were erupted to the surface, they were actually solid. So it wasn't a, a liquid. And this is quite important, again, for how we perceive the mechanism of a super eruption and basically uh, normal eruptions in general, because we believe that there is no need to have a liquid magma to have eruption of these post-climactic domes. Are there any super volcanoes that we should be aware of today? I mean, everyone thinks of Yellowstone, but we're told by the geologists that Yellowstone's actually quite safe right now. Yeah, so Yellowstone's been uh, highly pushed in the media. There was a, there's a documentary uh, on TV a few years ago where people believe that Yellowstone is about to erupt you know, relatively soon. But the truth is that super eruption is highly unlikely for at least several hundreds of years. So there are several volcanic centers with the potential of a super eruptions in the future, but these are really quite rare. So we should not be panicking about it. Although in general, an eruption may be dangerous, even though it doesn't reach the, the magnitude of a super eruption. So to answer your question, no, at the moment, I would not worry about any of the you know, potentially active super volcanoes. And there is probably less than 10 on our planet at the moment. And having said that, we need to pay attention how we monitor volcanic activity and probably also how we communicate potential hazards to public. Is there a correlation between super volcanoes and magma hotspots? Partly. So majority of super volcanoes are located along the so-called Pacific Ring of Fire, which is 
this huge belt of subduction zones around Pacific Ocean. So these are not related to the hotspots. However, Yellowstone is an exception because Yellowstone is located on a, a hotspot. So partly there's a correlation that would be valid for Yellowstone for the rest of the supervolcanoes rather now. We have a hotspot in Bass Strait that's very quiet at the moment, but we, we think there's one there, at least judging by a, a couple of um, trails of extinct volcanoes along the Australian East Coast. Just wondering for my own sake. <laughs> You'll be right, aren't we? Okay, King Island's not about to erupt. We should be right. We can still get our cheese. Oh, yeah. What's the takeaway message from this research that you've done? The main takeaway uh, message is that there is a lot of volcanic activity happening after the super eruption, and this can last for thousands of years, and this is quite important. That's Associate Professor Martin Danishik from Curtin University. And this is Space Time. Still to come, work now underway on the Orion spacecraft to be used for the Artemis III mission to return humans to the lunar surface. And four space tourists undertake a three-day voyage in orbit. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Work's now commenced at Lockheed Martin on the Orion spacecraft that will be used on the Artemis III mission to return humans to the lunar surface. The last time people walked on the moon was Apollo 17 back in 1972. The Artemis I Orion capsule, which began construction in 2015, is now virtually complete, and work on the Orion destined for use on the Artemis II mission that will be the first to carry a crew is also well underway. Artemis 1 will be a three-week unmanned test flight slated for launch to the moon later this year. Artemis 2 will carry four astronauts on an extended mission around the moon, probably lasting about three weeks sometime in 2023. Technicians have now completed welding on the Artemis 3 Orion pressure vessel. That's the underlying frame for the airtight crew module. At this stage, Artemis 3 is slated to carry four astronauts to the Gateway Lunar Space Station, it doesn't exist yet, but should be there by the time the mission launches. When they get there, astronauts will transfer to a pre-positioned Starliner lunar lander, which will then take them down to the Moon's South Pole for an extended visit. With work underway on Artemis 3, it means Lockheed Martin and NASA are now shifting focus from the spacecraft's design, development, test and evaluation phase through to the production phase. That development phase included the design, review and refinement of the spacecraft, its systems and testing. One of the highlights of the development phase was the Exploration Flight Test 1 mission, which flew an unmanned Orion capsule on a four-and-a-half-hour flight aboard a Delta IV heavy rocket back in December 2014. Orion reached an altitude of 5,800 kilometres and speeds during the flight of 8,900 metres per second. It tested Orion's heat shield, parachutes, jettisoning components and onboard flight computers. Other key tests were designed to prove the launch abort system both on the pad and during the ascent. Lockheed Martin is currently contracted to build a minimum of 6 and a maximum of 12 Orion spacecraft. And yes, there are 12 matching SLS rockets being constructed as well. Each of the Orion crew modules will be mated to a European Space Agency-built service module, which are being built in Europe and then shipped over to the States. As well as the moon missions, Orion will also be used for longer missions to Mars during the 2030s. 
However, a deep space transport stack will be added for the long-duration journeys to the Red Planet. These will include a habitat module providing additional room for crew and supplies, as well as facilities for spacecraft maintenance, mission communications, exercise, training, personal recreation, and propulsion systems. This is Space Time. Still to come. Four space tourists undertake a three-day voyage in orbit, and we take a look at the new Australian trilateral defence deal with the United States and Britain. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Four space tourists have undertaken a three-day voyage in orbit. The Inspiration4 flight aboard the SpaceX Dragon Capsule Resilience launched on a Falcon 9 rocket from Pad 39A at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Vehicles pitching downrange. T plus 30 seconds. Call-outs indicate nominal. Historic mission flying the Inspiration 4 crew on board Dragon and Falcon 9. Great deal with the crew in the capsule. We're into the throttle down, into the throttle bucket. Okay, you want throttle down? Throttling down in preparation for the period of maximum dynamic pressure. And then the Delta flight. Nine, it's supersonic. Max Stage Q. one, throttle up. We're through the period of maximum dynamic pressure. Copy, We're throttled back up and one Bravo, the call out from space. That's one of the abort sequences. That is a nominal call. Everything continues to be good. Looks like a smooth ride for the crew. Okay, we heard the call out. MVAC E is chilling. We're beginning to get the turbo pump ready on the second stage engine for ignition. We're passing through 3G's acceleration. Everything continues to look nominal. Merlin Stage engines are throttling down for G-limiting. 4G's, we're holding it there for the crew. Major event coming up will be main engine cutoff, followed by stage separation, looking at the second stage engine nozzle, and then ignition of the second stage. And Miko. Stage separation confirmed. Second stage has ignited, that's the MBAC engine. Uh, I'm sure the crew felt another kick in the G's there as it ignited. Officially, the Inspiration4 crew are now on their way to space. First stage booster bin is making its way back down to Earth. The grid fins have popped out to assist with the steering. It will be making a landing attempt on our drone ship. Just read the instructions, which is parked out uh, in holding position in the Atlantic Ocean. Position of signal, Bermuda. Dragon SpaceX, trajectory nominal. Love to hear that call out, trajectory nominal from the guidance engineer. Well past 100 kilometers. Acquisition of signal, New Hampshire. Next milestone for this mission is actually going to be happening on the first stage. It's going to be performing a re-entry burn that's going to be coming up around the T plus 7 minute and 30 second mark. That burn is used to slow down the first stage before it re-enters the denser parts of the atmosphere. A few minutes later, it will execute a landing burn 
and make an attempt to land on our drone ship that's currently parked in the Atlantic Ocean. Dragon SpaceX trajectory nominal. Dragon copies. Deep propulsion is nominal. MVAC engine we just heard now is looking nominal. Nitrogen puffs helping to steer and guide vehicle basically. Dragon SpaceX trajectory nominal. Basically is the attitude control. Dragon copies for the vehicle as it makes its way back down to Earth. This mission will be orbiting Earth for three days, uh, and they will be at an altitude of 575 kilometers, which if I remember correctly, John I, you said that that is the distance from Los Angeles to the Golden Gate Bridge. There you go. <laughs> They're gonna get there a lot faster. Phase <laughs> two, FTS is saved. Right now, at the entry burns, the first of two burns on the first stage. Uh, again, this first stage has already separated from the second stage. So stage the first stage burn, is making its way back to Earth, trying to land. And the second stage, everything is going well. It is headed into orbit with the crew on board. Stage two is in terminal guidance. All out stage two in terminal guidance. We're at the altitude. We're working the angular momentum we need to get into the right orbit. And if you're wondering, crew's pulling about three and a half G's right now, less than they took on the first stage flight. So in about 15 seconds, we are Shannon. expecting the, Copy Shannon. We are expecting the MVAC to throttle down and cut off in an event called second engine cutoff. And then we'll wait for the confirmation of good orbit. At the same time, the first stage will be getting its landing burn. And here we have the MVAC and shut off its engine. Stage one, landing burn still. All right, good news there. Nominal orbit insertion. That's amazing news for Inspiration 4 crew. The mission was the second flight for the Resilience Crew Dragon capsule and the third for the same Falcon 9 first stage booster. The booster then successfully returned to Earth, landing on the drone ship just read the instructions, which had been pre-positioned downrange in the North Atlantic Ocean. Stage one, landing is confirmed. Uh, Dragon SpaceX, launch escape system is designed. The Dragon capsule and crew are in a nominal orbit. The capsule was modified for this flight with the usual space station docking adapter replaced by a single monolithic dome glass window inspired by the space station's coupler module, thereby allowing 360-degree views outside the resilience nose. After their three and a half days in orbit, the quartet splashed down successfully in the North Atlantic Ocean and were collected by the quick transport recovery vessel Go Navigator. The mission was the first all-private orbital space tourist spaceflight. There have been previous orbital flights carrying space tourists, but they were all undertaken on Russian government Soyuz missions, which also carried cosmonauts from the Russian Federal Space Agency at Oscosmos. The SpaceX flight comes in the wake of two recent suborbital space tourism journeys, one of which, the Blue Origin New Shepard flight carrying billionaire Jeff Bezos, actually reached the 100-kilometre-high boundary which marks the beginning of space. The other, carrying billionaire adventurer Richard Branson aboard the Virgin Galactic Unity rocket plane, achieved an altitude apogee of 86 kilometres, just 14k short of the start of space. The SpaceX Inspiration4 flight was also the highest flying space tourism journey yet launched, reaching an altitude of 585 kilometers. That's some 165 kilometers higher than the average orbit of the International Space Station. The flight was organized to raise money for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, and it was funded by billionaire tech entrepreneur Jared Isaacman, who acted as mission commander for the flight. This is space time. Still to come. Australia goes nuclear with a new trilateral defence deal with the United States and Britain. And later in the science report, the world has a new COVID-19 variant worth watching. It's called the Mu variant, and it's taking off big time in South America. All that and more still to come.
on Space Time. Australia, the United States and the United Kingdom have entered into a new defence agreement designed to counter what's euphemistically referred to as the growing military threats facing the Indo-Pacific theatre. That's a clear reference to China's massive military build-up, which has included new spy satellites, warships, aircraft carriers, submarines and nuclear missile silos. Then there's China's threats to launch a preemptive nuclear strike on Japan its ongoing harassment of its neighbours around the South China Sea, which Beijing now claims to be its own territory in deliberate violation of international law, the illegal annexation of Hong Kong, threats to invade Taiwan, continuing border skirmishes with India, human rights abuses in Tibet, the persecution of the Falun Gong, who are being used for forced organ harvesting and transplants, and the alleged genocide of the Muslim Uyghurs in concentration camps. The new Australian-United States and United Kingdom Trilateral Partnership, with the unfortunate acronym of AUKUS, will see Australia build eight new nuclear-powered submarines, the nation's first, in Adelaide. Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison. The future of the Indo-Pacific will impact all our futures. To meet these challenges, to help deliver the security and stability our region needs, we must now take our partnership to a new level. And so, friends, AUKUS is born, a new enhanced trilateral security partnership between Australia, the United Kingdom and the United States. A partnership where our technology, our scientists, our industry, our defence forces are all working together to deliver a safer and more secure region that ultimately benefits all. AUKUS will also enhance our contribution to our growing network of partnerships in the Indo-Pacific region. ANZUS, our ASEAN friends, our bilateral strategic partners, the Quad, Five Eyes countries and of course our dear Pacific family. The first major initiative of AUKUS will be to deliver a nuclear-powered submarine fleet for Australia. Over the next 18 months we will work together to seek to determine the best way forward to achieve this. This will include an intense examination of what we need to do to exercise our nuclear stewardship responsibilities here in Australia. We intend to build these submarines in Adelaide, Australia, in close cooperation with the United Kingdom and the United States. Early reports suggest the new subs will be based around the 10,000-ton USS Virginia class. Now, if correct, propulsion will be through an S9G nuclear reactor developing 40,000 shaft horsepower with a submerged service speed of 35 knots and a service life of around 33 years. In their current US configuration, the Virginia class are 115 metres long, have a complement of 134 and are fitted with 12 vertical missile launching tubes and 4 torpedo tubes. The other option is the slower 8,000-ton, 97-metre-long British Astute class, which have a complement of 98 and are armed with six torpedo tubes. Astute uses the Rolls-Royce PWR-2 Core-H nuclear reactor, but it has a shorter service life of around 25 years. While all the attention's been on the new subs, just as important is Canberra's decision to purchase Tomahawk cruise missiles to arm the new subs and for their Aegis-class destroyers. The Tomahawk is a long-range weapon, powered by a solid-fueled rocket launch stage and a jet turbine cruise stage. It's currently used by both the United States Navy and British Royal Navy. 
It was originally developed in the 70s and 80s to deliver W80 and later W84 thermonuclear warheads using what at the time was an advanced terrain-following radar navigation system. Of course, it's been extensively upgraded since those days and now relies on satellite navigation and radar or electronic radiation targeting systems. In line with Australia's non-nuclear weapons proliferation treaty agreements, the Australian Tomahawks will carry 450 kilograms of conventional high explosives and will have a range of over 1,500 kilometres. The new Tomahawk deal comes on top of Canberra's new strategy to develop a significant sovereign guided missile manufacturing program. Canberra is already playing a key role in the development of the next generation hypersonic missiles and is a partner in the US Precision Strike Missile Program. It's also purchasing new advanced AGM-158C long-range stealth missiles and is part of the standard Missile 6 Block 1 program. The new AUKUS partnership will also see enhancing existing cooperation across new and emerging arenas, including cyber, applied AI, quantum technologies and undersea capabilities. However, the new agreement does mean scrapping the controversial and highly criticised $90 billion 2016 deal to build 12 large conventional French Barracuda-class attack submarines. That's made Paris very unhappy, and the French have recalled their ambassadors to Canberra and Washington in response. It seems now might be a good time to sign that deal with the French Railways SNCF and Auslam to build that long-promised Sydney to Canberra high-speed TGV rail line, the one the politicians keep promising every election but never quite get around to actually building. A 320 km per hour high-speed line from MacArthur in Sydney's southwest to Canberra would allow 90-minute city-centre to city-centre travel times, in the process opening up vast new areas for Sydney's ever-growing residential housing market. In fact, making both Sydney and Canberra dormitory suburbs of each other. This is Space Time. And time now to take a brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. The world has a new COVID-19 variant of interest, with the World Health Organization pointing to the new Mu variant of the disease, which is taking off in South America. There are fears this new coronavirus variant could be better at evading vaccines, thereby increasing concerns of making COVID-19 endemic in society. Scientists say the Mu or B1621 variant has a number of mutations which suggest it could be more resistant to vaccines. Early studies warned that the Pfizer vaccine is less effective against the Mu variant compared to other mutations. In fact, it's already been found in 39 countries and has a constellation of mutations that indicate potential properties of immune escape. These include a mutation called P681H, which was first reported in the Alpha variant and is potentially responsible for faster transmission. Mu also has the mutations E484K and K417N, which are associated with being able to evade antibodies against the coronavirus. The new variant's other mutations include R346K and Y144T, whose consequences are as yet unknown. Mu's already been reported in 10% of cases sequenced by the University of Miami, and Reuters are reporting that seven fully vaccinated residents in a nursing home in Belgium are dying from a Mu outbreak. At this stage, the global prevalence of the Mu variant among sequenced COVID-19 cases is still below 0.1%. 
but it has consistently grown in countries such as Colombia with 39% and Ecuador with a 13% increase. Something to worry about. Meanwhile, a new study has shown that in people over 60, the rates of confirmed COVID-19 with severe illness were substantially lower following a booster third dose of the Pfizer vaccine than after just the two initial vaccine doses. The findings, reported in the New England Journal of Medicine, looked at more than a million people over the age of 60 in Israel who had been fully vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine at least five months earlier. The study found that 12 days after the booster dose, the rates of infection were 11 times lower in the booster group than the non-booster group, and the rate of severe illness was almost 20 times lower in the booster group. The World Health Organization says more than 8 million people have been killed by the COVID-19 coronavirus, with almost 4.7 million confirmed fatalities and some 230 million people infected since the deadly disease first spread out of Wuhan, China. Scientists are warning that the combination of a drying climate and water resource development has placed the Lower Darling River at greater risk of fish death events such as the one which devastated the River Darling in the summer of 2018. A report in the Journal of Marine and Freshwater Research warns that the extreme hot-dry climate in 2018 and 2019 shaped the conditions that saw a large number of fish stranded in muddy ponds around Menindi. Those hot, dry climatic conditions also saw distinct layers develop in the water with a bottom layer lacking oxygen. A series of sudden cool changes started mixing these layers and the result was a sudden drop in oxygen levels in the water and no escape for the stressed fish. The authors say existing levels of water resource development coupled with a drying climate are once again presenting a significant risk to the long-term health of native fish populations in the rivers of the Murray-Darling Basin. Paleontologists have described a new apex predator dinosaur at a dig site in Uzbekistan. The findings, reported in the Journal of the Royal Society of Open Science, are based on a left maxilla or upper jawbone. The new carnivorous dinosaur, named Olugbeksaurus uzbekistanensis, roamed what is now Central Asia some 90 million years ago during the Upper Cretaceous. The genus's namesake is fittingly regal. Olugbeksaurus is named after Ugulbeg, the 15th century mathematician, astronomer and sultan of the Timurid Empire of Central Asia. The species is named after the country from where the fossil was found. Scientists say the creature had a mass of over a thousand kilograms and was approximately seven and a half to eight meters long. A new study has shown how easily people can be fooled by a kind artist doing a psychic reading. The experiment used a supposed psychic contacting the dead to find out key details about the test group subjects. It seems many adults are easily convinced by a paranormal event, especially if it arouses their emotions. Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics says, researchers found more than half of the people in the test group really believed the psychic event. This was an experiment that was done in an American college and reported on in a magazine called Psychological Reports. It was basically a team of uh, researchers who put on a, uh, a psychic experience and then asked the students whether they believed in it or not, and apparently 65% said they did. What they did was they invited over 400 students along to see a psychic performance, and this psychic would then of go around to people and suggest things to them about themselves and uh, you have this particular issue, blah, 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 and go around to all sorts of different people and, and they're amazingly accurate according to 65% of the students who were there. It was then pointed out that he was a magician and he was doing a trick and this has been going on for 
decades, actually, this sort of uh, trick, if you like, of students and people fall for it. There's a classic case, the 60s, 50s, whatever, where students were asked in American college were asked to give their birth date and time of birth, etc. And they took them away and they said, a, a professional astrologer will go and look at these and assess your characteristics. And they gave them back to each individual student and say, here is yours, here is yours, here is yours. How accurate is the reading? And they overwhelmingly came back and said, it's amazingly accurate. It's, it's so me. And then they pointed out that everyone got the same one. So basically, it's, you stick out some general comments out there, and this is what this psychic stroke magician was doing, and people will believe them. And it's so easy to do. It's uh, 10% of these students said, yeah, it's a, it's a trick. And 25% said they weren't quite sure, but 65% it was genuine, they said. So that's a lot of percentage of the population if, uh, if only 10% of it's depressing for skeptics. It sounds like it's a, a good piece of education to give your students about life. It is, and it's exactly what I do when I visit schools and things, and I visit people from high schools all the way up to retired people and Lions Club and Rotary Clubs and that sort of stuff, and I give the same sort of lesson about don't believe everything you see, right? And that people are more critical about the everyday things of their life, choosing a fridge or that sort of thing. They go through all the all the, the uh, routine of actually choosing which fridge to buy, but they wouldn't use the same thing about psychic or paranormal or religious experiences. Um, so we don't apply critical thinking in the serious end of the scale where we do in the, in the less serious end. And the trouble is if you've got to go through every class of students every group of people to give them the same lesson. Unfortunately, you're countering mass media and social media and whatever who are spreading the alternative message, the the paranormal message, a lot more widely and a lot more quickly. So it's a bit of an uphill job. It's a job you keep doing anyway. I, I know from a sceptical point of view, never give up. That's Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics. That's the show for now. Space Time is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favorite podcast download provider, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. Space Time's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. Just go to SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, at SpacetimeWithStuartGary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel. And on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. And Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 